from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from the Centre for European Reform. I'm Ian Bond, the CEO's Foreign Policy Director, and it's almost exactly a year since Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Uh, at the time, many observers, me included, suspected that Ukraine's armed forces would collapse quite quickly, although I thought that Putin would face an impossible task to control a country as large as Ukraine, particularly if it seemed quite likely there was an insurgency. But a year later, Putin only has control of around 20% of Ukrainian territory. And that has come at a terrible cost to Russian forces, depending on whose estimates you believe, perhaps 200,000 killed and wounded, or perhaps even more. But Ukraine has also lost many servicemen and women and many civilians. We still don't know how this war will end or what kind of Ukraine will emerge from it. But joining me today to help me work out some of the answers are General Sir Richard Sheriff, former Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe, and Dr. Olesya Khromechuk, Director of the Ukrainian Institute in London. So, Richard, if I can start with you, what have you learned over the last year about the two armed forces? Were you surprised by how badly the Russians performed, or were you surprised by how well the Ukrainians performed? I think the answer to both those points is yes. Uh, I think most of us uh, assumed the Russians would be much more effective and capable than they have proved to be. And what we've seen is a, a lamentably poor understanding of the basic principles of offensive combined arms operations, disastrous logistics, a failure of command and control, and a, and a, and a terrible failure of morale and discipline, and a reversion to Plan B, which has been the wholesale destruction of Ukrainian cities, massacre of civilians and, and, and the whole panoply of the ghastliness of, of what, what they've done. But we should not write them off. The Russians have got inexhaustible supplies of manpower. They may not train that manpower very effectively at all. They may continue to prosecute what are, by any standards, First World War style, massive infantry assaults with huge casualties. And they can continue to do that or will continue to do that if they're given the chance. As far as the Ukrainians are concerned, I think none of us thought the Ukrainians would not fight like tigers. And they've done that. They have given us a masterclass in operational design and campaign design and implementation. And so I highlight the brilliance of the battle for Kiev last year, the offensive operations east of uh, Kharkiv, and then the very successful liberation of Kherson. So th there's plenty there to be, to be delighted about, but more to follow, providing they get the Western support. Yeah, thank you very much. So, I mean, Alessia, if I can turn to you, I'll ask you a similar question, but about the Ukrainian population, about civilians in Ukraine. I mean, your, your own family tragedy with the terrible death of your brother fighting in the Donbass in 2017 is a reminder that for Ukrainians, this is not a war that's been going on for a year. It's a war that's been going on for nine years. But has anything in people's reactions to being under constant bombardment for the last year surprised you? Do you think that, that Ukraine and the population of Ukraine have 
changed significantly as a result of the experiences that they've gone through in that period? Thank you for that question. Uh, so Ukraine surprised the world, but Ukrainians are not surprised to see the reaction of Ukrainians to, to this absolutely brutal genocidal war. Um, you rightly pointed out we've been fighting this war for eight years. Um, what happened a year ago was an escalation to a, an all-out war, essentially. But, you know, we've already been facing this enemy for a long time, and we already know what the occupation means to Ukraine, to Ukrainians citizens because we've seen it in Crimea for eight years and we've seen it in parts of Donbass. Now the rest of the world knows about it too. Uh, we've seen uh, mass graves, we've seen torture chambers, we've seen concentration camps and so on, kidnapping of civilians, including children. Thousands of children have been kidnapped and sent to Russia for forced adoption. So we, we know that the alternative to fight is occupation and that means that's not a viable option for Ukrainians. So I was not surprised to see defiance and determination even before the rest of the world started to support Ukraine militarily, politically and economically. Because I mean, if we had to rely on our own strength on our own defiance, so be it, we will continue fighting until we win because that is our only option. The other reason why I wasn't surprised is because Ukrainians made it very, very clear in 1991 what they wanted. They overwhelmingly supported independence of Ukraine. In uh, you know, in all regions of Ukraine, over 90% of the population voted to, to choose independence from the Soviet Union. And we have confirmed that uh, position since in various uh, popular protests against authoritarianism, against corruption, and so on. So this is something that I think the rest of the world have to learn very quickly about because it was under underestimated. I think the power of Ukrainian civil society was hugely underestimated. I am glad to see now that uh, the world has discovered Ukraine and I just hope that the situational interest in Ukraine will actually have structural changes in our perception of the region and perception of the country and support for the country. Yeah, I hope so too. I mean, I, I think you're right. We learned a lot in the, in the last year. And I have to admit, you know, I've been dealing with the former Soviet Union for more than 30 years. I certainly couldn't have found Kherson on a, on a map before, you know, a year ago. Now I have a much better appreciation of the geography, the scale of, of Ukraine and so on. Richard, I, I wanted to turn back to you. So Ukraine has received weapons and equipment from a lot of NATO countries, including the UK. I mean, it's sometimes felt as though we've been taking a sort of jumble sale approach to this. You rummage in the back of the cupboard and you find you have a few spare howitzers and a few boxes that may contain relevant ammunition. And you hope that you know, if you hand those over, somebody will be able to make good use of them. I mean, you're more of an expert on these matters, but it seems to me there must be some terrible complications in supply chains um, for, for Ukraine. But do we have a more strategic approach? Or should we have a more strategic approach? Should we actually be sitting down and planning you know, that Ukraine needs X, Y, and Z in order to win this conflict, and then figuring out how do we supply those? Again, yes, is the answer. We, we should be looking carefully, discussing carefully with the Ukrainians, which I'm sure we are, but designing a an offensive structure, an offensive capability to allow Ukraine, which gives Ukraine the best chance of liberating all its territory as quickly as possible. And that means a properly thought through combined arms structure together with aircraft and we, the issues there are, are well known. But on the other hand, you, you've got to start somewhere. If we'd started this process right at the start, we wouldn't be where we are now. On the specifics, there's been good and bad. I mean, I would highlight the real positives of the Javelin 
uh, anti-tank weapons, the NLAW anti-tank weapons, and the handheld air defence, which was rushed in really quickly after the Feb- after February the 24th last year, and allowed Ukraine to succeed and, and do so well in the battle for Kiev. And of course, more recently, the decision to send state-of-the-art tanks, Challenger 2, Leopard 2, that is all good news. But equally, there has been a bit of rummaging around in the back of the cupboard. The Bulldog, for example, which I see as being sent 20 Bulldogs from the UK. Well, you know, the Bulldog is nothing more than the old AFV 432, which came in in the 1960s with a bit of uh, spaced armor put onto it quickly in haste for the Iraq war 20 years ago. And then, you know, other stuff like that. So, yes, there is a requirement for a proper strategic look, a requirement to help the Ukrainians design absolutely state-of-the-art armed forces. Final point is the logistics. There is a sort of Noah's Ark of vehicles, and I think it must be a complete nightmare for a technical quartermaster in the Ukrainian unit faced with three or four different variants of equipment together with different sorts of ammunition. Uh, And so the more that we can do to standardise the capabilities, the better. I mean, a quick supplementary. Do you have any sense of whether governments in NATO countries are feeding the orders to the defence industrial side to be able to to provide you know the, the ammunition to continue to produce the the end laws and the javelins and so on i mean i i can't remember where i saw this but but i saw a statistic that it was going to take uh, the producers of the javelin something like eight years to double the production rate so do you have any sense of whether you know governments are, are sort of providing the wherewithal to enable that to time frame to be short? The answer is I don't, but I would hope that they, hope that it is. And then it's, almost, it's a related question here. And it's it's the whole issue of, of the West and NATO's deterrent capability, because there are two aspects to what Mr. Sunak called at the Munich Security Conference, the importance of doubling down. Number one is the, the need to double down for the Ukrainians and provide that capability. The second aspect is looking to our own defences. And if NATO is to be able to offer any credible form of deterrence, it has to be prepared for the worst case, which means being prepared in extremis for war with Russia. And for that to happen, we need to relook at our armed forces completely and look again completely at our sustainability, our ammunition supply, and our industrial strategy related to the provision of ammunition. Yeah, thank you. Very important point. I mean, Alessia, so we've talked a lot about the the military side of the support. I mean, I'm wondering, you know, what other kinds of support does Ukraine most need? I'm very conscious that obviously something like the visit of President Biden to Kyiv can have a very important effect on morale. But is there a danger that a procession of Western leaders going to Kyiv turns into something that I think you yourself warned against in your writings of becoming war tourists. Is that the right kind of support? Are there other kinds of support that Ukraine actually needs to get from its uh, from its Western partners? So Ukrainians have been very clear that the best humanitarian support at the moment is military support, because that is what saves lives. Um, a year into Russia's full-scale uh, war against Ukraine, Ukrainians are still sitting in bomb shelters because of the mass bombardments of cities and towns and the targeting of critical infrastructure. Uh, we've been asking for air defense since day one, and it's still not being appropriately delivered. 
support. So that's one thing to remember, that the two are not separate. Humanitarian support, political support, economic support, and military support are all parts of the same issue. It's sort of dealing with that, with the problem in, in that kind of combined way. In terms of visits of various leaders to Kiev, I think it, it is very important to continue to show that solidarity. A lack of solidarity and cracks in alliances in the so-called Western world was something that Putin very much relied on when he staged the full-scale invasion. He miscalculated, as he miscalculated on, on various issues. The support was there. We continue to see some cracks. We continue to see Trojan forces of, of the Kremlins in Western Europe, uh, and, and, and not just Western Europe as well. I mean, Hungary, I would like to think that it's a it's an exception that proves the rule of otherwise very stable solidarity, but we need to maintain that solidarity and we need to make it last. Now, I, I have a lot of faith that it will last, partly because I've just come back from Australia. Before that, I was in the States um, and I travel around continental Europe quite a lot as well. And here in Britain in particular, everywhere I go, I see overwhelming support of the general uh, population for Ukraine and Ukrainians and investment in this victory. And I think growing understanding how Russia's war in Ukraine affects all of us internationally and how it threatens the values by which we stand. What I don't always see is the same determination and understanding of the political leadership. The delays that we've seen in supply of weapons, of the help that Ukrainians have asked, have all translated into unnecessary loss of human life. I think uh, the, the leadership of the democratic world will, will, will do itself a favor if they listen to their electorate more closely and see that the electorate supports victory in Ukraine. Just a quick follow-up on that. As you've indicated with your, your trips to Australia and America, you know, you've become a, a prominent spokesperson for Ukraine. But as you look forward, how do you keep Ukraine on the front pages? How do you counter the risk of Ukraine fatigue as, you know, sooner or later journalists move on, whether it's to the, the earthquake in Turkey and Syria or to some other tragic events globally? Do you have an idea of... of how you keep this at the top of people's minds? Oh, I think it's only natural for us to look at crises around the world as they unfold. It's uh, it's normal for us to pay attention to all parts of the world and not just to Ukraine. And I also understand that war fatigue is, you know, where it comes from. People find it really difficult to stay alert when they are exposed to images of really horrendous, brutal war. What we need to be careful with is Ukraine fatigue, because Ukraine fatigue is something that the Kremlin is uh, using as a weapon of war against all of us. And that's essentially turning uh, attention away from what Moscow is doing in Ukraine. And one way for us to not lose sight of uh, of that is to understand the consequences for the rest of us, to understand that Russia is very capable and has been using grain crisis in order to essentially manufacture hunger in the poorest countries of the world, that uh, nuclear blackmail uh, has been used very efficiently by the Kremlin for for years and especially over the last year that we can't possibly in the talk of concessions or or some sort of peace deals where peace is not being arranged on, on the terms that are proposed by Kiev we must not allow the situation where the war criminal is rewarded for war crimes that he's perpetrating uh, because if we do allow that to happen we are going to end up living in a very frightening world wherever we are in the world so I think understanding the global impact of Russia's war in Ukraine is going to keep Ukraine um, at the focus of our attention. No, that's a very important point about impunity. I think you know, it is very clear that there must not be any impunity. And at the end of this process, we shouldn't be seeing 
the war criminals you know, strutting around in London or anywhere else, enjoying the benefits of the crimes that they've committed. Richard, perhaps the final question to you. I mean, we think a lot about what we have done for, for Ukraine. I'm also interested in what we can learn from the successes that the Ukrainians have had. You know, I know that staff colleges tend to sort of study past campaigns. I mean, what do you think the people who are devising, you know, next year's curriculum or whatever for staff colleges are thinking about the campaigns that are going on at the moment? What, what lessons are they going to be learning? And for that matter, in the shorter term, as the UK refreshes its integrated review, what lessons should the UK be learning from what we've seen Ukrainians doing over the last year? Well, the Ukrainians, as I said, have given us a masterclass in, in operational design and execution of a, of a campaign, particularly in the offensives last year. And this is in a context of a return to Europe of state-on-state industrial war, which many had consigned to the dustbin of history. I think many of us have felt that that was a very dangerous thing to do. But this has brought home loud and clear the imperative of designing armed forces to fight and to fight with all the capabilities that the 21st century gives us. So what we've seen is traditional, in a sense, traditional combined arms capabilities, tanks, armored infantry, fighting vehicles, armored engineers, self-air defense, et cetera, et cetera, combining though with 21st century capabilities UAVs, drones, cyber, hugely successful information operations, strategic communications and the like. And I think our, those who design our armed forces should be looking very carefully at that, and particularly in a British context. Like it or not, and many in this country perhaps would like not like to like it, we are part of the continent of Europe. The wolf nearest the sledge remains Russia and will continue to remain so as long as Putin or a Putin lookalike is in the Kremlin, and that is going to place an imperative on effective deterrence and capabilities. So we should be focusing our attentions on principally land war in Europe, air land war in Europe. Yes, there's a maritime component here, uh, but you have to think very carefully about tilting to the Indo-Pacific and other areas like that when actually the wolf nearest the sledge is, is, is Russia. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. Um, so uh, let us hope that our um, elders and betters in Whitehall are uh, thinking the same way. Well, um, that's all we have time for today. I'm very grateful to my guests, General Sir Richard Sheriff and Dr. Olesia Hormechuk. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast from the Centre for European Reform. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe to the series on your preferred podcast platform and leave us a good review. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.